exploring interesting topics that impact our lives and fascinating ideas that get us thinking. I'm Kyle. And I'm Kelly. And this is Things to Think On. cycle in the United States. And it's been pretty brutal, as I'm sure we can all remember. But one thing that made it slightly less brutal, especially if you had to get on social media at all, was being able to use the mute functions on Twitter and Facebook and whatever else so that you could pause some of the discussion and stop hearing about some things or stop hearing from some certain people who maybe had strong opinions and strong, difficult opinions in one way or another. So that was an awesome feature and an awesome thing to have in what otherwise would be just a cesspool of terribleness. Negativity, really. Yeah, negativity or positivity. I don't know, depending on how you look at it. Yeah, that's true the snooze button it's nice because you of course you want to stay connected with these folks that's why you're following them yeah (laughs) but it gives you the opportunity to just maybe not see it for 30 days (laughs) (laughs) and then if that's not enough time then you can not see them for another 30 days and usually i guess if you have to keep doing that over and over then maybe At that point, you should just do the old unfollow. But I'm glad. I'm so glad for that snooze button. So glad. Because periodically things will come up like elections or other things that you just need to snooze people for a little bit of time. Put a little bit of time and space. And that just makes you so thankful. Even during times of thankfulness that you can just put a pause on some of that thankfulness or or whatever it is. You're getting too much of that thankfulness. Yeah, if you're getting too much thankfulness, you just pause (laughs) that and snooze and get away from it for a little little while. Speaking of that, though, we wanted to, in the spirit of being thankful for being able to snooze people, talk a little bit about some things that we are in fact, very, very grateful for, and some really interesting things in the spirit of Thanksgiving. So we're coming up very quickly on Thanksgiving, or if you're listening to this after the fact, in the season of Thanksgiving. And you maybe are seeing posts about that or people talking about it. But we wanted to take a look at some things that we are probably all very thankful for. And maybe take for granted in some ways, or maybe just don't know as much about as we probably should. And some of the very interesting stories behind some of these things. So that is what we're going to take a look at today. And to kick things off, the first thing is something that I am obsessed with and love and I'm thankful for, and that is clocks being able to keep track of time, which is, it may sound a little bit silly, but no, if you, it's not silly. It's not silly. If you were to walk around our house, we have clocks in literally every room. <laughs> I am I am literally I love clocks for one thing. And watches. And watches. Love watches. And, and he was, he's wearing two right now. <laughs> <laughs> one on each wrist. <laughs> That's not a joke. I literally am. I'm obsessed 
with telling time. And if you think about the history of, of being able to tell time, for most of human history, we were not able to do that very accurately. So going back for centuries, we as humans were not able to keep track of time in any really meaningful way. So a lot of human history was keeping track of time through things like sundials, for one, or other means. So sundials being one of the ways that you could tell the time. So setting up a way to keep track of the hours through something like that, or uh, just when the sun was rising and setting. So, you know, if, if we were going to schedule something, it would be, you know, at sunset or sunrise, you know, pistols at dawn, that would be what we're going to do. And so we both know what that would be. One thing that got me seriously thinking about that, I, I reread all of the uh, Tolkien works this summer. And one of them had the people of Rohan going to help Gondor towards the end. And, and one of the, you know, at, at one point, everything had gone dark. And so there was no sunlight. And at one point they were writing at dawn, but dawn never came. And I, I seriously was thinking about that. Like, how would you handle that in a situation like that when literally you tell time through those types of ways? And now, you know, you need to coordinate among your host and the way you do it is through something like that. And now you don't know. And it's just an interesting challenge because now the sun, it does come up, but it's completely obscured because of, you know, the dark powers that were, you know, that were happening during that story. So anyway, so going back to kind of the history of our own history now, we devised many different ways of telling time. Water clocks were one. So uh, as water kind of was in one vessel and then dripped into another vessel, measuring how that happened at a regular interval. Um, another way was candle and incense burning. So creating candles or incense that would burn at a particular rate and then watching as that happened. And that carried on for a long time. These are just really fascinating, but not very precise. And so you'd be able to kind of keep track of larger blocks of time, but everything kind of had its drawback. So in uh, 1656, this was when there was the invention of the first pendulum clock by Christian Huygens or Huygens. Um, and uh, it was a Dutch, yeah, he was a Dutch scientist. And so I'm pronouncing that incorrectly. Um, for anybody who speaks Dutch, Huygens might be another way, but anyway, an absolutely brilliant person. And we want to get into all the things that he did, like discovering Titan and, and studying the rings of Saturn and among many, many other things and uh, positing uh, some theories about light and whatnot, but uh, creating the first pendulum clock, which was the most precise way of keeping time at that point. And so getting out of the idea of, you know, having to do some of these other things. And then he went on to invent the spiral balance or hairspring, which you could then start to use in pocket watches and started to create some of these other mechanisms so that not only could you have these large clocks, but you could start to carry a clock with you in, ver in various ways. And so timekeeping went from being kind of this very, very difficult thing to being this much easier thing. And that to me just, it continues to be more and more fascinating because the, some of the things that we depend on for timekeeping just got easier and easier. One story that I absolutely love 
So people started carrying pocket watches, men carrying pocket watches, and women wearing wristwatches, primarily because men had to kind of guard their watches against the elements. And so as they were doing other things, and they weren't very durable things. And so if you wore it on your wrist at the time, uh, you you just wouldn't be able to kind of keep it from that sort of thing. So it, it wasn't until the late 1800s and early 1900s that men started to to wear wristwatches. And it was because of uh, wars and also the the story of uh, Santos Dumont, um, Alberto Santos Dumont, who was an early aviator. Now I'm going to ask you, Kelly, are you familiar with Santos Dumont at all? No. Okay. Now I'm going to ask you another question and I'll ask everybody this question. Uh, if you're, if you're an American, you will probably answer this one way. Now who were, who was, or who were the first people to successfully fly an airplane? The Wright brothers. The Wright brothers. And every American will probably answer that question as the Wright brothers. I would have too. It's wrong. It's, <laughs> dun, dun, dun. it's more contentious than you would think. <laughs> so when I so when I spent some time living in Brazil, that's one thing that every Brazilian will like intentionally ask you about <laughs> because they will have claim on the invention of the airplane as well. Because a Brazilian named San Alberto Santos Dumont also was inventing an airplane at the same time. Mm-hmm. And there, it, it, the, the history behind it is, is more, I think, contended than many of us like to believe. And so uh, he was one of the first to successfully fly it unaided and in front of people, whereas the Wright brothers, uh, their their test flight was under different circumstances. And so they claim that he was the first, and he obviously claims that as well. So fascinating stuff. But he was an early, early aviator flying um, like hot air balloons and airplanes and things like that. And he needed a way to pilot all of these things because he was constantly crashing them, for one. And yeah... (laughs) And he needed a way to do it without having to take his hands off the controls. And so he went to his friend, uh, Cartier, a French watchmaker, Louis Cartier, Mm, to design. We're all familiar with that name. Yes, to design a watch for him so that he could wear it without taking his hands off the controls. And so his his friend did that. And I should I should uh, also mention that Santos Dumont was very, very rich. So he was the, the son of very wealthy Brazilian uh, parents and I think coffee owners or something like that. So super rich. And he spent his time flying airplanes and hot air balloons and stuff. So designed this watch, started wearing it. It's still, I believe in production, like the Santos Dumont watch anyway. And that is how we started to get more and more wristwatches and more men actually wearing wristwatches like we have today. And actually at the turn of the, the century became a much more popular thing to do. So, so you're saying that the Santa Simone made it more popular for men to wear the wristwatches? It was one of the things that, that made so it more popular. So did it catch on in Brazil? So he was actually living in Paris at the time. Oh, okay. So when he was doing a lot of this, so he was flying his hot air balloons in Paris and flying his airplane in Paris and, and whatnot. And that's how he was friends with 
Louis Cartier and whatnot. But yes, sounds he was. Like, he sounds was like quite the life he was living. Yes, he was living <laughs> a a fancy life, and he was. I think he was like super eccentric and just super popular. Because um, I mean, he was flying his hot air balloon and like landing it and to go to restaurants and stuff like that. Like he was just eccentric and almost like almost like an Elon Musk type of person, just like rich and eccentric and just doing crazy things for the time, like you know, pushing the boundaries of, of what people could do. So super fascinating to me and, and popularizing the wristwatch among other things. There you go. And then we had the mechanical watch and then discovered the ability to use quartz in watches in, so that was in 1928, I believe. And then in 1948 discovered the most accurate time keeping that, which is the atomic clock which is still the most accurate that we have today. So went rapidly from using candles for centuries and centuries to mechanical, to quartz, to atomic. And now we are able to much more accurately keep track of time, which I just, I think is, is crucial for, for so many things, but it's something I love and something that I think we would be in a real difficulty if we weren't able to do for a lot of reasons. So like, how could you, how could you bake things well if you couldn't keep track of time and um, how could you obviously schedule things with people if you weren't able to appropriately keep track of time like dawn and dusk just aren't accurate enough for that sort of thing and then for me personally like being able to time box certain activities so understanding that you know i'm going to spend 15 minutes or 30 minutes or, or 45 minutes on some certain activity and uh, you know, allow myself to focus really hard on doing something and then move on to something else. Like those are things that are just important. And then obviously like our technology today, like we have to be very, very accurate in order to do many of the things that we do with GPS and computers and all the technology. So super important things that we now are able to do because we're able to accurately keep track of the time. Yeah. Is it weird that I find clocks really beautiful? No. Like I really do. I just absolutely love clocks and I love really elaborate clocks. And I've got several on my Christmas wish list. And I almost added another one and then stopped myself. <laughs> I you can thank Christian Huygens for that. He's the inventor. If he, was, if he was around for me to thank, I surely would. If he was around, yeah. Genius that guy right there. Maybe we'll maybe we should do an episode just on him. He apparently I didn't even realize it, but was it was just one of the most important scientists i think that's a good idea and before that we can ouija board him and thank him and see what he has to say to us that's a good maybe guest appearance <laughs> yeah there we oh, go there we go okay christian if you're listening appreciate it give us a sign <laughs> <laughs> all right well uh is is it my turn to to mention something that i'm yes thankful for Along with the spirit of Thanksgiving, obviously the clock is on my list too, but I was thinking about it and something that I am really, really grateful that we have is the ability to take photos and the ease of which we can do that now is just incredible and it's widely available to everyone. And I appreciate it not only for the obvious reasons. Of course, I like having photos of my family and 
of the places that I visit and all of that. But obviously we learn a lot through images and we have this incredible ability to explore the world through photographs that we share with each other and to learn about history too um, through photographs. And so I'm super grateful that we have that ability and that it is so widespread. And it hasn't always been the case, obviously. It's gotten, photography is really quite modern. People have been using lenses and that sort of image technology for uh, over a thousand years now. But actually being able to record an image that lasts, that didn't start until uh, 1827 is when we're crediting the first photograph. And that was using um, metal plate technologies where a chemical was spread on a metal plate that was light sensitive and it would etch the metal and create an image. But it took a really long time to create it, um, about eight hours to make that image. And so it wasn't something that people had wide access to either. And the picture itself wasn't incredibly clear either. From there, the film roll was developed, but that wasn't until mid-1800s. And even then, the expense of it, creating the film roll, was not something that was widely available either. And the, the camera. So the metal and glass plates um, that were used before were really cumbersome and expensive. And then uh, a celluloid-based roll film was invented in the mid-1800s. And that was easier for people to use, um, still expensive. And the cameras themselves that were using these roll films were also um, cost prohibitive. So it wasn't something that was widely available to most, but more affluent people were able to start doing portraits and that sort of thing. Again, it would take a really long time to get the exposure and everything on these uh, rolls. So you have to hold really still. <laughs> and I'm sure you've seen those, right? Those photographs yeah. of like oh, the, vic- would, the Victorian yeah. era. Nobody's smiling. Nobody's smiling because <laughs> they've been sitting there for a very long time, holding as still as possible, uh, trying to get this portrait. Um, and then... The big big breakthrough was Kodak. Yeah. And that is, it's so amazing, like what Kodak did and how long they were doing it too. It was basically like the photo company for for almost a century, for over a century. Like they just, they did it. And again, in 1888, made... The Kodak, and that's what it was called. It was like the Kodak yeah. camera. It was the camera for the masses is yeah. how they marketed it. And it were, it really was. I mean, they had the, the film in both rolls and sheets. It was much easier to use and much less expensive. So the more people could use it. And yeah. you push the button and they did the rest is what has also how they marketed it. Made yeah. it much more simple for people to take photos. Yep. And 1888, so that's incredible that you went from like having to sit still <laughs> and pose for this very expensive and long process. Uh, and then just a short while later in 1888, you, you get a much easier camera to use. And, um, and then in, so you had that where you basically got the camera, had the film in it, you take the pictures and then you send it back to Kodak. They develop it and then put new film in it, send you back the camera. You're ready to go again. But then in 1900, they introduced what we're probably all familiar with, the brownie, which was an even simpler 
less expensive version of the Kodak. And it was like a smaller box that you could, that everybody could use. And it brought photography to the masses, basically. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) That's right. Um, And then obviously the, the more, the really popular SLR cameras with photography uh, enthusiasts, those became popular in the 1950s. Those were those were nicer, I think a little bit cost prohibitive for most people, but not completely, you know, outside what maybe the average person could afford, but yeah. still a nicer camera. But my favorite thing is the addition of cameras to our cell phones. Wait, we can't skip over the first digital camera. Oh, that's true. So because I love I love the digital cameras. The first one. It took, it was almost going back to like that Victorian age because the first digital camera was created in 1975 and it took. Also in the Kodak lab. In Kodak. Yeah. So Kodak created it, which we could go into just how Kodak missed the boat in, in digital because of their focus on film, but they created it. It was a 0.01 megapixel camera and it took 23 seconds to actually take the picture. So again, not like cutting edge, but in 1975, I mean, it was kind of pieced together from from parts and more of a proof of concept than anything, but still starting to move down that road. Um, and then Kodak, I think, even teamed up with Apple for one of the first mainstream digital cameras in the 90s it was the Apple QuickTake. I didn't even realize Apple got in on the uh, the digital camera market, but of course they did for a little while and Kodak also partnered with Canon and Nikon I believe yeah so there's quite a lot of collaboration in the digital camera industry yeah until until Kodak just totally missed the boat and did not pursue digital like they should have another story for another time though so there is there's the digital I still remember my first digital camera I got in (laughs) I think it was the early 2000s it was like a three megapixel camera and it was amazing i loved it it was just because i used to walk around so this is a side tangent but i used to walk around with the disposable uh film cameras and just take pictures because I, I loved being able to take pictures and so that was one of the the gifts that i got for graduation from high school was a, a digital camera it was about the size of a disposable camera too so small compact and just amazing yeah you still love cameras i still do i'm surprised this isn't one on your list it would it probably would have been had it not been on your list but yeah we have we have i think you're more enthusiastic (laughs) he's more enthusiastic about the technology aspect of it than i am i'm i'm more of the uh just the memory he's i'm i'm grateful for that because my memory is not that great and so when i look at an image it jogs it and it's the same with um things that i've learned I'm able to look at a, an image of it. It reminds me of all the things that I read. I don't know. It's funny how your mind can connect those things, yeah. images to memories and yeah. and whatnot. Um, when was it? 1999 that we got the the camera and the cell phone. The first camera phone. Yeah. <laughs> Which again was not a, I guess is somewhat of a technological marvel, but at point one megapixels was not at that point replacing 
like your point and shoot camera or your nice camera. But I think it came in at around $400 for that. So mm. that's not bad for the first camera phone. Yeah. And it, and it brought cameras and phones together for the future, basically. And I remember that after that, you know, cameras weren't part of phones until every, literally every cell phone had a camera on it. And you come into that sort of thing and you're like, holy cow, every, every cell phone has a camera now. And it, it was quite the leap from. And not only do they have cameras now, but they have really good quality cameras. Um, I mean, you can take some really nice photos with these phones and uh, apply filters and edit them all, all really quickly and easily. Oh yeah. I don't know when exactly the turning point of that was. It all happened so rapidly. It, it both rapidly and and blurry enough that there was probably no like line in the sand of like your phone is now just as good or better than any camera that you'll otherwise be carrying with you. But there was certainly a point or series of points that you didn't need to be carrying or have or for a lot of people even have a separate camera in order to take really high quality photos for most things that you need. I think for the everyday photos, it's, it's, it's awesome to be able to have, cause who's not carrying their cell phone everywhere they go. And so, I mean, if there's something that you want to take a picture of, it's, it's just so easy. It's kind of ironic right now. My camera's actually broken on my cell phone <laughs> <laughs> as we talk about how easy it is. Um, but I'm really feeling the pain of it. Like, Which is probably if you think about it, that's probably like one of the most important features of your cell phone. Like if we were to rank yeah. cell phone features. It's certainly one of them. The camera would probably be like second. top three. Yeah. Probably second for me. Maybe, maybe third. Yeah. It's close. Um, and phone would not even come in top 10. <laughs> <laughs> no, phone, instant communication is actually on my list. And I'm going to talk about that in, in, a, in a second. But um Yeah. It broke on Sunday and I'm supposed to get a replacement phone today. Uh, and I have several times a day, every day, wanted to take a photo and then found that I cannot. Yeah. And I'm pretty sad about it. It's difficult. Yeah. And um, I've come to rely on that feature being readily available. Cool. Okay. All right. Number three on our list. So, so far we've had clocks, cameras, this one is both timely and a little bit timeless. So vaccines and vaccines are kind of an old idea. And, I, you know, from the history, we think that some form of vaccination or inoculation was practiced way back in China and India, possibly as early as 200 CE. Um, but... The modern tale of vaccination uh, in the West is with a person named Edward Jenner. And so he was a country doctor living in England. And in 1796, so a while ago, performed the world's first vaccination as we know it. He had heard stories that milkmaids who had been working with, you know, farm animals, obviously, and who had gotten sick with cowpox were immune to smallpox. 
And so he wanted to test that theory out. And so he took some of the infection from somebody who had cowpox and he took that to a young boy, uh, the son of his gardener, which uh, ironically, as somebody pointed out, he decided for some reason not to test that on one of his own children, but took that to a boy who was as yet unaffected by smallpox or cowpox and administered the cowpox to him and then went back. And uh, after he had had done this, uh, (laughs) infected this boy with smallpox, which is just, it's a little horrific to think about right now, but the boy did not get sick with smallpox. And so he was able to prove that through a different virus, the cowpox virus, you were able to gain immunity to smallpox. And so this idea of vaccination uh, was, was born that we could create immunity through a different means. So inoculation had been practiced for a while. So kind of uh, taking the disease itself and infecting yourself so that you could acquire immunity. But this was really taking it a step further and taking a different virus and gaining immunity. And so uh, he he called it vaccination. The Latin for cow is baca, so called it vaccination. And this kind of kicked off the idea of vaccination going forward. You know, we're, I think, huge beneficiaries of vaccines uh, to this day and have have been able to eliminate uh, a large number of diseases or control a large number of diseases through effective vaccinations, which we're very fortunate for. Obviously, right now, you know, we're working on a a number of vaccines for COVID-19 in order to help us get back to some form of normal quicker than we otherwise would, which is incredible. One story I wanted to highlight with this is the story of the polio vaccine, which I think is just awesome. I love this story so much. I don't know if you're familiar with the story of the polio vaccine at all. Somewhat. Okay. There were a number of people working on this vaccine in you know the 19 well for quite a while so work began on it in the 1930s but they were unsuccessful and a man named Jonas Salk he had been studying flu vaccines during World War II and, and he moved over to start work on the polio vaccine so his work was primarily around an inactivated or dead virus which and so there were some other researchers working on an attenuated or kind of a weakened virus so had these dual tracks working at the same time. In 1953, he was successful with a small test of his vaccine. And in 1954, moved to a massive test across the US. It was proved successful. And I think they had like a million uh, people in this, in this group at, at one point. And at that point, it proved successful enough that they moved into getting it out to the public, basically across across everywhere. And they did like these massive vaccination campaigns because polio had been, it hadn't been a massive problem as far as uh, numbers go, but it was one of, I think one of these problems that enough kids were impacted. And it was at a time where technology was advancing so rapidly that I think people were just of the feeling that 
we should be able to to stop this and kids shouldn't have to suffer from this debilitating illness and, and we should be able to conquer it. And that's what they set out to do. This The part that I love about this is that Salk did not patent his vaccine. He uh, basically created it and then wanted everybody to have access to it. Could have easily, with the number of vaccinations that they did, probably become a billionaire um, almost overnight through the creation of this vaccine, but instead gave it away. And literally everybody was able to uh, get vaccinated and we were able to essentially eliminate polio uh, because of this. And he became super famous, did not ever want to become famous or rich because of it. So just it's one of those like awesome stories. Uh, there was also another person or another team working on it, um, Albert Sabin, who was working on an attenuated vaccine. So this is like a weakened virus uh, who was also successful a little bit after Salk. And this one was a little bit easier and cheaper to administer. So also went really far in eliminating the polio virus because it could be administered orally and also created uh, less expensively. So while the Salk vaccine was used a lot in the U.S., the Sabin vaccine was used around the world um, because you didn't have to do it an injection. You could just uh, give people uh, like an oral medication that they could take. And so a massive, massive win for vaccines and for the humankind in getting this disease eliminated. So just I thought that was, I just love that story, the success of vaccination and eliminating polio among other diseases. Yeah, it's pretty incredible. I mean, it would be a completely different world if, if we didn't have vaccinations, the ability to break down viruses and figure out a way to get immunity to it without actually exposing ourselves to the full version. Yeah, it's definitely, it's nice to not have to do something like that for anybody who's had to get the chicken pox. And I think that's a lot of us who are a little bit older versus getting a vaccine for the chicken pox. Like, and that's just a mild one. Like certainly would prefer, I would have preferred to not ever have the chicken pox than to, than to have it. So those types of things, big wins, big, yep. big fans of vaccines. Am I up next? Yeah. Okay. <laughs> well, I've kind of already touched on this a little bit, um, with the, uh, the camera, uh, being so readily available on our cell phone, but I also am just super, I just love having instant communication and I feel also really dependent on it. I would venture to say that almost everybody feels really dependent on it. I feel almost paranoid if I walk out of my house without my cell phone. If I get somewhere and realize that I don't have it. I mean, it's really not unusual for me to just go home. And <laughs> you just get used to being able to be reachable and to be able to reach people whenever you feel like the need arises. But the history of uh, instant communication is is pretty interesting. I mean, obviously, we've had communication for a long time. We can go all the way back to the earliest writing. We're talking about cuneiform, you know, <laughs> way back, <laughs> like 3000 BC. And then, you know, writing letters, obviously, that was the primary form of communication for much of human history. But fast forward way forward 
um, all the way to 1938. And that's when we start to get what we're thinking of as more instant communication, right? And that started um, with the first portable AM radios produced by the U.S. Army Signal Corps of Engineering Labs. Um, They were considered the first walkie-talkies. And these weighed a whopping 25 pounds <laughs> um, and had a, about a five mile range. And they were widely used for in- infantry battalion and company intercommunication during World War II. So really an important use, I suppose, worth lugging the 25 pounds around <laughs> to be able to reach um, your fellow uh, troops. Um, and then after that came the radio transceiver in 1940 that weighed 32 to 38 pounds and had a three mile range uh, about 50,000 units <laughs> that seems like it's getting worse <laughs> this was also world war ii era so um they were really trying really hard to come up with technology quickly and considering the time frame i think they were doing pretty well sure i guess it's better than a smoke signal still but yeah So, and then shortly after that, in 1942, Motorola produced the first handy talkie, is what they're calling that one, for the U.S. Um, And that was a more handheld version of the previous transceivers, but this was the big one. It only weighed five pounds. See, now now it's getting better. (laughs) Yeah, now it's getting better. But the trade-off was that its range was only about a mile. Hmm. So not a very wide range. Um, Then moving away from that military aspect um, to other kinds of communication, we had the first um, car phones. That was a pretty popular means of instant communication when you were traveling. In 1946, Bell System introduced the first commercial mobile telephone service integrated into um, your vehicle. But this wasn't like the car phones that we think of now. No, this was like they were a intense. massive, massive yeah. device like they were built huge, into your car. And they were meant to use uh, more for like utility trucks and uh, like those large truck fleet operators meant more for them. But still important in yeah. terms of the development of technology for this communication. And then it was in 1956 that you got the first um, mobile system for automobiles that were meant more. They were still huge, 88 pounds, but meant more for a normal vehicle. Yeah. Um, and not just the commercial vehicles. Jump forward all the way into the into 1973, and then we are getting more of the prototype of the first mobile phones, not widely available to the public but private, uh, privately used and tested by Bell Labs. And then in 1983, 10 years after the first prototype, Motorola um, made the first cell phone available to the public, weighing just under two pounds, but costing nearly $4,000. That was the first actual cellular phone. Yeah. And it was, I mean, it really was huge. Yeah, it was like a big, a big phone. It was a big <laughs> brick, a really big but it took it took ten years to build out the infrastructure to actually be able to use it. So, like, you had the idea and you had the prototype, but then to build out the communication infrastructure so that you could actually have a phone and be able to use it 
anywhere, you know, well, not anywhere, but actually be able to go out and use it. 10 years to build out the infrastructure for that. Infrastructure with cellular use is just so important. I mean, that's, that is really the part that takes a long time. The technology for the phone itself is, uh, I mean, it was only a few years later in 1989 that Motorola introduced the first flip phone and it was much smaller and much lighter. (laughs) And it was the actual first pocket phone. You know, so you go from this big brick. Well, that depends on your pockets, I guess. <laughs> well, when you're talking about a massive brick that you literally have to carry in its own bag because it's so big <laughs> to something that flips open and can slide in your back pocket. Like that's, that's true. That's quite a difference. And then after that, the technology really moved pretty quickly and you got the phones just kept shrinking and shrinking 1996 you got a truly small flip phone from motorola um, more of the clamshell style i think that we remember pretty well and that was actually popular well into the 90s as well um i know my first cell phone was a flip phone from motorola actually well yeah i mean they we all probably had a motorola phone yeah, At and that was point. in 2005. <laughs> it's kind of embarrassing that I didn't have my first phone <laughs> until 2005. That's actually one of the things when I was thinking about what I'm so grateful for uh, in terms of instant communication. I It made me think about that first. So I grew up in Southeast Texas. We've talked about that before. And then I moved here uh, to Utah where I currently live. But I came here to go to college and I moved here not knowing anyone. And it was really terrifying. I mean, I was never, we, we weren't, you know, affluent by any means. So I didn't do a ton of traveling or anything up to that point. Um, so moving away from everyone and everything that was familiar was really terrifying. And I remember coming with my mom in my car and I have this little, this tiny car and everything that I could own and take with me was packed in there. Um, and my mom was with me, so she took some of the space and a little bit of space for her luggage. So that, that took away from the precious resource of space of what I could bring with me. But I remember getting to Provo, Utah, where I was going to go to school at BYU and feeling overwhelmed with fear and anxiety because I wasn't, I was leaving everyone I knew and I didn't know how I was going to be able to talk to them. Like that was what was really getting to me. And then my mom and I went into Provo Town Center Mall and there was a little Motorola booth (laughs) there. And my mom must have been on the same page as me wondering how she's going to talk to me. And so we went to that kiosk and she's like, I'm going to make sure you have a phone because I need to be able to talk to you. And I was relieved and I was like in my head thinking, oh, my gosh, I'm so glad she's doing this because I couldn't afford it. I was already trying to pay my way through college and anyway but the relief I felt and knowing that I was going to be able to call her call my dad call my friends and whoever I needed to um whenever that was going to be instant and I was going to be reachable and they were reachable it was just an incredible relief to me and it made everything else so much more doable it's amazing and then a few years later um I went over to Petra Um, to do some field work there. And I remember again, having that same kind of anxiety because I was leaving you. Mm -hmm. Um, And I, (laughs) the only communication that they were offering us was, you know, semi, like bi-weekly, I guess, visits to an internet cafe 
where right. I would be able to send an email. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm going to be living in the Middle East and uh, not be able to talk to anybody. That, that Again, that anxiety cropped up. Instead of going that route, I decided to just buy a disposable kind of uh, reloadable cell phone. It was surprisingly inexpensive. But now, if you want, you can just extend your plan Whenever you go on a trip or if you're going to be overseas for a couple of weeks or something, you can decide what days you want to have the the usage of your plan. And just, I think it's like, what, $10 a day or yeah. something like well, that? Depend, yeah, it depends on where you go. Depending stuff, on yeah. where you go. Any of the big touristy places. And I think, honestly, Petra probably would have been on the list or would be on the list now because it's so touristy. But like uh, the port cities on your cruises and that sort of thing. They're all the port cities on your cruises. They're all uh, included on these um, upgrades that you can do for short periods of time on your cell phone plan. And we've used that quite a few times when we went on our cruises, when we went to London, we went to Mexico. We were able to actually video call our kids and have that instant communication just um, by paying an extra 10 bucks that day. We were able to have that and we could use you know, our data and everything was just extended to that international area. So anyway, it's just amazing how far we've come with these instant communications. You can call people, you can text instantly, you can video call from across the world instantly. So super cool. Love the technology development there. It's so funny when you look at this sort of stuff, how it just gets faster and faster and faster, the improvements and the ability that you have once that infrastructure is laid. Yeah, totally agree. So that brings us kind of to the summation of all of this. So the final thing that we're grateful for. So (laughs) the past 10 months have probably felt like a decade in themselves. And it has certainly been interesting. Looking back, you know, I was thinking about the end of 2019 And if you were like us or like me, you were probably thinking like, and everybody's situation probably varies, but 2019 was pretty good. And especially looking at 2019 now, like I'm sure everybody's feeling like 2019 was pretty good. And if, if you were like me, you probably had a lot of high hopes for 2020 and (laughs) (laughs) innocent fool as you were. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, you can go back and just. Tell yourself that naive version yeah. of yourself in 2019. <laughs> yes, you poor fools. <laughs> you poor, poor fools of 2019. That being said, if there was any time that you could pick to be in, 2020 is probably not a bad place to be overall. There has been a lot, certainly a lot happening, and it has been difficult. But as we look back through history, humanity has faced plagues and pandemics throughout our entire existence from the plague of Justinian to the black death, to the the Spanish flu to today. And they have been difficult. And by comparison, uh, I think most of the pandemics and plagues previously not only have been significantly worse, but to face them in the conditions that people were in would be significantly worse as well. Like the plague of Justinian, for example, that broke out in the Mediterranean and Europe and Near East around 541 CE killed about a fifth of the population. 
And this was the first outbreak of uh, Yersinia pestis or the, or the bubonic plague. And then, of course, it came back again in what we know as the Black Death to both Asia and Europe, killing anywhere between 30 and 60% of the population, which is just absolutely mind-boggling if we think about it. And then the Spanish flu, which was a, a century ago, so 100 years ago, that was the H1N1 influenza that, I don't know if we've talked about it on this podcast, but did not originate in Spain, originated most likely in Kansas, here in, here in the United States, killed uh, an estimated 100 million people worldwide. So when we think about what has happened previously and where we're at today, there's certainly a lot to be grateful for and how and how much better things are, not just with the pandemic, as bad as it has been, but with things like life expectancy. I was looking at some statistics in... 1860, the life expectancy, what, what would you guess life expectancy was on average in 1860? In 1860? Yeah. Uh, my guess would be like 45. Ooh, close. 39. In 1920, 53. And today, 79 in the US. I, I suspect that this most recent pandemic might shave a little bit off of that average life expectancy, but still increasing significantly. Childhood mortality, 200 years ago, what would you guess childhood mortality was 200 years ago? The percent? Oh gosh, I would say probably, I would guess high, 50%. 50%, yep, that's right. I guess right. You guess yeah, right. that's also part of why the mortality rate, like the, the average life expectancy is, it was like in the, when you said 39 <laughs> in the late 1800s, that's largely why it's because of child mortality rates being so high. Once you live to be an adult, life expectancy actually increased. Goes up, yeah. Mm -hmm. And certainly as as you reach 79 to like your life expectancy, it doesn't go to zero at 79. Like you're still expected to. <laughs> Is that so? It's not an expiration date. <laughs> no, still expected to live for a few years. Um, but uh, globally childhood mortality has gone down 10 times since then. So around 5% today. So it's, that's just awesome. One story. So we'll end with like one story that kind of illustrates this. So, and this is from Jon Snow. So for all of you Game of Thrones fans, Jon Snow, this is not the Jon Snow from Game of Thrones, just FYI. Uh, this is a British doctor from the 1850s. So this is just to illustrate like how much better things have gotten. Uh, so he was, a, this was a British doctor who believed that cholera was a disease that you contracted through water. People did not know that then. They thought cholera was something you got from breathing in stinky air. He, <laughs> he was out completely on his own trying to tell people that, no, this is something you get from drinking bad water. Every other doctor was like, no, you're, you're crazy. It's just don't breathe in stinky air and you'll be fine. But there was a pump, the Broad Street pump in England, and people started to get sick from cholera. And so he went and he started tracking down all of these people to figure out how they were getting sick so that he could test his theory. And he started to narrow in that 
they were drinking from the same pump, this water pump, and uh, eventually was able to narrow in to the Broad Street pump and convinced the, uh, the people of the city to shut down, to take the handle off the pump so the people would stop drinking from it, so they would stop getting cholera, which was a deadly disease then. And when they finally did that, people stopped getting sick. And eventually they found out that this outbreak was from uh, somebody washing their baby's diapers in the pump. So this was, and this was like a common practice, like washing your dirty diapers, you know, right next to the water pump where everybody's getting their water, the everything kind of mixing together and stuff. And back then, apparently it wasn't uncommon for people to like bottle water from the Thames and sell that and stuff like that, which if you know the Thames in in England, that's just, that almost makes my stomach churn just a little bit to think about. But <laughs> the Thames is just, it's got literally thousands of years of crap at the bottom. Yeah. yeah. That's literally where everybody has thrown their feces Don't get for me thousands wrong. of years. I love London. I love it. And I, and I even find the Thames very nostalgic, but that's just super gross because it has just been poop. Just the, the, it's yeah. been like the main plumbing fixture. <laughs> yeah. For London for thousands, for, for thousands of, years. of years. Yeah. But people just did not understand that you could contaminate your water, even, you know, up to like 150 years ago. Like it was just not understood that this sort of thing like you mix your drinking water with your washing water and you're going to get, you could get super sick and die. And so this was like one of the first proofs that like, Hey, you don't do this sort of stuff. Like we have to have cleaner sanitation practices if we don't want to get sick and die. So not even that long ago that like we didn't understand that and had to push for those kinds of changes. So anyway, John Snow making things cleaner over in London and helping everybody understand that you get cholera by washing your, your dirty diapers in the, the town pump. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, it's easy to like, I don't know. It seems obvious, but it wouldn't have been obvious back then. And it would have been a lot of work to have to, to pump that bucket full of water and take it somewhere else to wash the diapers. And I'm sure that whoever that was was already overworked. Oh yeah. No. And that's the thing is nobody, nobody would have understood, not even the doctors at the time were believed it. And so like he had this theory that literally nobody understood or believed even the doctors at the time thought he was crazy. And so it's just amazing to me that you know how little we understood about that sort of thing and how far we've been we've come in just our general hygiene practices which there's um a thesis known as the uh, McCune I think that's how you pronounce it McCune thesis that most of our better health and longer lifespan and all of that is due primarily to our increased uh, sanitation practices our better eating and our uh, better, our basic, basically our better standard of living, and that a lot of the uh, medical practices that we have, so things like antibiotics and vaccines, those have contributed, but they've contributed more on the latter end as we've improved health dramatically, and as lifespan has increased and, and mortality has decreased. You know, we've been able to do more around some of those things, but generally those types of practices have been what have really increased well-being for everybody significantly 
over over the last few hundred years. Yes, and modern plumbing and things like that yes. have made it much easier for all of us to have that uh, clean water and sanitary disposal of waste and all of that. Yes, so good, so important. So important. And now we get to have these luxurious water heaters, so we can even do it with warm water. Thank you, 2020. Actually, that's been around for a while, but still. Yeah. Sometimes I look around at, at like what just a simple, like modest home is now. And I just think, you know, it's palatial compared to what people were living in 200 years ago. It really is. So a lot to be, a lot to be grateful for living in the modern era. How, um, how much more comfortable we are really. Yeah. So there you go. Lots to be grateful for. <laughs> Lots to be grateful for indeed. So thank you for listening and we'll see you again soon. Thanks again for listening. If you liked our show, don't forget to subscribe on your favorite podcast app. You can find out more on our website, thingstothinkon.co. You can follow me on Twitter at Kyle Larry Evans. You can also find Kelly on Twitter at S. Kelly Evans. See you next time.